Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. I'm hooked on a feeling. I'm high on believing that you're in love with the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Blue Suede for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a Raw Bone podcast. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. Let me kick off by apologizing. The audio is not going to be up to our usual stellar level this week. Um, I am using a handheld uh, landline phone. My microphone suddenly died on me, and they didn't have one at Best Buy today when I went listen, listening. So it's a one-week thing. Again, my apologies. I want to thank everyone who listens to this show. The show is doing well. It is the number 38 pro wrestling podcast out there, according to Chartable. And I know some of you are saying, you know, well, 38, that's not that great. Hey, I'm out there competing with Ric Flair, Jim Cornette, Sean Waltman. Shout out to Sean. So, I mean, for my category, Fanboy Wrestling Podcast, Stick to Wrestling is doing great, and thank you once again. There's even more competition now for that spot because my Twitter buddy, Brian Solomon, has a new show on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. It's called Shut Up and Wrestle. I mean, what a bunch of grouches we are here at Arcadian Vanguard. Stick to Wrestling, Shut Up and Wrestle. But Brian's a really good guy, and I encourage you to give his new podcast a shot. I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm probably going to tonight. Let me see. Facebook and Twitter. Join our Facebook page. All you have to do is request to be part of Stick to Wrestling. More on that later. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling avatar as his avatar. I got away from Morocco and Maine fighting with chairs, so there you go. Finally, Ryan Ashby, thank you for donating generously to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. If you would like to donate, no amount is too small and certainly no amount is too big. I'm on PayPal at ProWrestlingArchives at gmail.com. Thank you again, Ryan. And with all that said, I would like to bring on our guest this week, our popular guest, Thomas Bain. Thomas, thank you for coming on. Hey, John. Great to be back on yet again. And actually, this has been a favorite of mine because I wanted to do a mailbag episode since the very beginning and said, you know, hey, Thomas, come on and we'll talk about Portland in 1977. So, yeah, at least now... I can get to something that's somewhat topical. So thank you, John, for having me on this mailbag episode. I'm excited to be on. No, we're going to do the Portland 1977 episode sometime in February. Fantastic. <laughs> right. So I'll tell you what, Thomas, and that's another reason to join the group if you listen to the podcast, because we do occasionally, like today, nothing but mailbag questions. So, Thomas, I'll tell you what. You're the guest. You pick the first one. All right. Uh, I'll pick this something a little close to home for me. Uh, John Ware asks, I ask respectfully again, so I'm getting to you, John. Keep that in mind when you do the mailbag. If you or anyone knows how or why Memphis Wrestling was on television in Western PA, Eastern Ohio in the mid-1980s, can you get me in touch with the Lawler so I can ask him? Well, I think I can probably answer this question with the most common, sensible answer you can think of. Pittsburgh obviously was a WWF town. No question about it. It was that way from the beginning of Bruno San Martino in 63 all the way really until the end of the Monday Night War. However, 
there were two UHF stations in Pittsburgh, in addition to the big three networks, WPTT uh, 22 and WPGH 53, which became a Fox affiliate in the late 80s. Both were starving for programming. The NWA came in very, very early in the territory wars and got on WPTT. The UWF went to Pittsburgh when they went nationally syndication. One of the first cities they got into and one of the cities they did really well in was Pittsburgh. Now, I did not know that Memphis was in Pittsburgh until this question was asked, but I can't help but think that wrestling was a hotbed popular sport in the city of Pittsburgh that you could just put it on anywhere. I remember even in the late 90s, XPW being shown syndication with the uh, Pittsburgh affiliate, the NWA, the uh, NWA uh, territory back in 98 with Dennis Carluzzo, they were shown late night in Pittsburgh in the late 90s. You could put any, any kind of wrestling on in Pittsburgh. They had Glow was on WPGH back in the 80s. It was everywhere. You could not get away from wrestling on a Pittsburgh-affiliated station in the 1980s, John. Thomas, your answer is my answer, basically, a, a better version of it. I mean, I think there was just a demand for wrestling inventory. I don't think the promotion had any kind of you know, desire to promote out there. But I'll tell you what, John, um, maybe to get your question better asked, I think Jerry Jarrett is generally available on Facebook, and if you ask him a question there, he'll probably try to help you. All right, my turn. Ryan Botwinick asked, how do you think Dusty felt in the WWF's locker room? Did they treat him with respect, disdain, or as just another guy? I have a lot to say here, but Thomas, I'm going to let you go first. I imagine he was probably treated like a like a prison guard who gets thrown in the clink, John, is what I, I kind of lean towards, first of all. <laughs> Frankly, I, I think that he had, to, he had no choice but to go to the WWF. Florida was dead. He tried that early on to you know, try to bring Dustin in. That flopped. The, the company flopped. He really had nowhere else to go. Everyone knew he was a political power play. If you're Jerry Lawler, do you bring him into Memphis? There's nothing in the AWA. The AWA probably couldn't afford to bring him in, even though he had a run there at the beginning of his career. Where else was he going to go? I don't think there was any idea in his mind that he would be there long term. I think, and this just speculation, obviously, that Dusty felt once the smoke cleared, once things changed with uh, Crockett, NWA, WCW, that he could come back in again once that you know time had settled. I think he had to just kind of put his head down eat shit and like it, basically, John. Yeah, that's kind of what happened. Um, Dusty had tried reopening Florida. He lost some money doing that. And, you know, if he wanted to go to work, the WWF was the only place he could go. But to answer Ryan's question, and I got this right from someone who, was, who wrestled in the WWF, when it was first learned that Dusty was coming in, he was going to get ribbed worse than anyone in the history of the business. And, you know, generally when it came to ribs and whatever, McMahon just let the boys be boys. Well, when word got out, a memo was sent to all of the WWF wrestlers, and they were told that Dusty Rhodes was to be treated with the utmost professionalism and respect. This is unprecedented. The WWF would never do something like that. But they intervened on Dusty's behalf, and 
then, again, unprecedented, Vince McMahon would approach individual wrestlers who, you know, were leaders of their cliques or who they knew had a had heat with Dusty, and Vince would say, you better take that memo seriously. So, And to, to further answer Ryan's question, Dusty came in and he was bossing everyone around, like, back as if he were still the booker in the NWA, and he wasn't popular, but there was nothing anyone could do about it. Yeah, I think it's exactly right, John. I agree 100% with that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it, I believe it was in the Observer as far as the memo thing goes. And again, one of the guys who was in the locker room, you know, gave me the rest of the information. But anyway, over to you, Thomas. Jeremy Marshall asks, I've heard that Vince McMahon was in talks to bring Eddie Gilbert back in in 1987. How do you think that would have gone? Would they primarily use him as an enhancement talent, a heel manager like he did with Lanny Poffa in the late 80s, early 90s? I think he would have been a mouthpiece for sure. I think in 1987 WWF, there was no room for him in the ring. Think about it this way. He was smaller than dangerous Danny Davis, who they were billing as a pipsqueak. Danny was clearly on the gas, but he was still, in terms of right now, Danny would be an average-sized competitor you know, in, the, in NXT. And then Eddie Gilbert was smaller than Danny Davis in that regard. I think he would have used him in a manager capacity. I think he would have had uh, a talk show segment now that Piper was gone. Jake Roberts was a baby face. They had nothing really going from 87 all the way to Brother Love, which I believe was in the summer of 88. I think he'd have taken that spot. I think eventually he would have managed somebody. Would he have started something hot stuff international? Probably not because it's on a Vince creation. But do I think he would have done something with that had a protege had something i think he had he had several different options there could he have been a part of creative ah at that point in time you know the, the kitchen's kind of full but i think there was spaces for him there and ultimately spaces for him to succeed i agree for the most part with what you're saying he did get an offer to come in in 1986 according to eddie and he approached Bill Watts. He was like, you know, Bill, I'd like to get out of my contract. Uh, you know, I got an offer from McMahon. And, and Watts said to him, well, that's funny because I was just about to make you Booker. And Eddie was like, that's the one thing Bill Watts could have said that would have changed my mind. And But, yeah, he did get an offer. He, you know, stayed in the UWF. If he had gone to the WWF, I agree uh, Thomas, that he would have gotten, uh, I hadn't even thought about a talk show segment, but he would have been perfect for that. I think he, they would have used him the way they used Lanny Poffo in like late 89, 1990 as mostly a manager, but sometimes he gets in the ring. I mean, basically what he did in the UWF was a little less wrestling. Yeah, I, I don't see anything unless he's going to be the the hurdle for a mid-card champion to get around to his guy. You know, fighting the Ultimate Warrior on Saturday night's main event, taking the DDT and having a snake on him on TV. He would have been almost the, not the jobber to the stars in the ring, but he would have been the, the barrier between the, the heel he managed and the, and the babyface. That was probably the extent of his in-ring career had he gone there. I agree with you, and that's kind of how they used him in 1986 in the, in the UWF. He was the the little pipsqueak manager guy who occasionally wrestled and, 
you know, if you wanted to get to him, you had to get through Sting and Steiner. All right. Matthew Tyler asks, if you gave Greg Valentine Bob Backlund's title, who do you slot him first with not named Hogan? Now, any thoughts on this, Thomas? Well, I guess there's the, the question to this. Is Hogan out of the picture, or are we just saying Valentine's got to build up to somebody to get to Hogan? Because I have two answers for that. Because if Hogan's there and you're building Hogan up, then you want somebody for Valentine to kind of leapfrog over and to have, have some credibility as the champion. And for that, it's probably uh, Tito Santana. Now, if you're saying Hogan stays in AWA and you want to try to book a, a equal heel, a he, or equal face rather, that can get the crowd going that's brand new in the company, I would bring in Paul Wondorf as a baby face at that point in time. I can definitely see that. I mean, Orndorf was already there as a heel, but if you had just held off on that, Orndorf would have been a great babyface challenger. I, I mean, I'm interpreting this question as Greg Valentine came back to the WWF, I want to say February 1984, for his third run, third and final run. And I think had they made him champion right around that time, well, first, you have a series of rematches with Backlund. That only makes sense. While that's going on, you've got the, the Sergeant Slaughter Iron Sheik feud going on. So hopefully you can, after you have Backlund, Backlund's rematches, yes, have Tito Santana as the number one contender. He just won the Intercontinental Championship, and it's a fresh matchup, you know, champion versus champion. Then after Slaughter and Sheik's feud is over, I mean, Greg Valent- or Sergeant Slaughter challenging Greg Valentine for the WWF Championship is a money program. And then you've got JYD coming in. So without Hogan, if they had gone in that direction, there was no shortage of challenges for Greg Valentine. I, I thought about Slaughter, but given his gimmick and the popularity he had, I worry that unless you say, all right, Slaughter, we're giving you the belt and running with it, he's going to go before he has to put Valentine over. Yeah, um, you know, and I was going to talk about this. We have another Sergeant Slaughter question. As a matter of fact, well, Anthony Osiello, it's right here. If Crockett had signed Sergeant Slaughter in 85, could they put up a stronger fight for national attention by capitalizing on his cartoon exposure and his feud with the Koloffs? And I'm going to kind of combine the two answers. The thing with Sergeant Slaughter, in order to make him a babyface, a, a long-term money-making babyface, you can't just feed him evil heel of the month all the time. He's got to have serious programs against, you know, other wrestlers. And that, that's not what the WWF did. He had the feud with the Iron Sheik, and right when that was winding down, they bring in Nikolai Volkov. And even at the time, I'm like, you got to give this guy a little bit something, you know, outside of that character. So I do think, you know, in order to manage Slaughter properly as a babyface, you have to have him going after Greg Valentine. It just, you know, otherwise the character gets stale, and that's what they did. I mean, the AWA had him, and they've got him feuding with Boris Zukov, for God's sake. Well, the part of that with feuding with Zukov was, granted, it's you know more or less the heel of the month, uh, foreign menace of the month. But once Slaughter turned babyface in '84, and then compounded with the GI Joe popularity. He was very protective of his character. That's why, really, in Pro Wrestling USA, 
He didn't have a lot of marquee matches with, with clean finishes in the AWA. He kind of stayed a little further back from Bach. We can go in Hanson. He kind of fought the mid-card heels because you couldn't have Bockwinkle or Hanson pin Slaughter. He wasn't going to let that happen. He would have packed up his ball and left. See, but you wanted to keep Slaughter, so you had to keep him happy, and to keep him happy was to keep putting him over. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, Slaughter was very protective of his character. He wasn't going to do a job for anybody in the AWA, so keeping that in mind, you know, yeah, you, you can't have him against Flair and Bockwinkle unless, you know, you're guaranteed to do some kind of a screwy finish, and you can't do that forever. I think one other person that has been mentioned, if you're going to go around the horn, you could do Greg Valentine and Andre and just have DQ finishes around the horn. Because Andre never really had that run with superstar Billy Graham with the heavyweight, you know, around the horn for the world title. If you do it with Valentine, you probably sell out around the horn for a couple of DQ finishes. Maybe you do a lumberjack match. Obviously, Andre doesn't keep the belt, but that buys you, you know, two, three months to where you can bring another guy in as well. You know, it's funny when uh, superstar Billy Graham was the champion, like as, as a little kid, I think it was what, 11. I totally bought into the idea of, Oh, Andre, he just loves traveling. He's not interested in the WWF championship. And you know, what more natural uh, match would you have? I mean, they had Andre the giant against Nick Bockwinkle and Comiskey park in 76. But I think, you know, I think everyone who goes to that, they know Andre's not winning the title. They know he's also not losing. And I, I mean, Andre and Graham would have drawn, but you, you would have drawn just, they did draw just as well having guys like Ivan Putsky and, you know, whoever, Mil Moscaris, and, and not having to go through all of that. Do you think if the expansion wasn't so obvious by Vince, they could have brought Dusty back in for a run in 84? Just a, you know, around the horn like they did in 78. Well, I mean, if, if you're right, if, if they hadn't expanded and they might not, oh, they would have, with, with or without Hogan, they would have. But let's say Vince hadn't expanded yet. Oh, I think it would have been, it would have made too much sense uh, to not bring in Dusty Rhodes and do exactly what they did in 1977 and 1978. You know, bring in maybe even Kerry Von Erich. I don't know. You know, the top baby faces from around the globe like they did with superstar Billy Graham. Michael Hayes. Michael Hayes would have been big as a baby face in the WWF. I, I will not back off from that. He was the David Lee Roth of wrestling. Okay, let's go through this laundry list here of questions. I'll go, let's do a Bruno one. Back in 1972, right. from Mark Hurt. Back in 1972, Vince Sr. approached Bruno San Martino about regaining the WWF Heavyweight Championship, and he initially refused. Assuming he couldn't talk Bruno into becoming champ again, and if he still insisted on transitioning the championship off of Pedro, how do you think Vince Sr. would have booked the title between 73 and 77 when superstar Billy Graham eventually became the champ? John, I'll let you go first. You're the more seasoned WWF fan. Well, this is a little bit before my time, although I have read up about it in magazines and results, etc. My best guess is that they would have brought up Jack Briscoe and would have taken a heck of an offer. I mean, Briscoe wasn't crazy about the Northeast, you know, didn't like the weather. But to me, you have to make him the, the best offer you can and get him in because he was the guy. He had 
He had the look. He had the uh, his interviews were good for what they were, uh, meaning that back you know he could do the Bruno Sammartino type interview. I think Jack Briscoe would be your obvious choice. In the spirit of the question, I will answer it. But I, my my gut feeling is they just kept the belt on Pedro first of all. But I, I would guess if I had to go in and, and look at that seventy three. That leaves you too early for somebody like Larry Zabisco to come in to be Bruno's protege. That takes that out. Obviously, back one's out. Obviously, Dusty's not there yet. I don't think someone like Billy Robinson would have transitioned well into the WWF at that time. Where do you go next from this? Do you go to a, a Spiros Arion as a face? I don't think so. I, I think the only answer keeps turning back into Jack Briscoe because I don't think Terry Funk as a baby face at that time would have worked either. To me, it's Briscoe or almost nobody if you're going to have that long-term champion. Now, if you're going to hot-shot the belt you know, every six to nine months like they were going to do later on, I think you have a lot more opportunity to answer that question and a lot more guys come into play there. But I think with the parameters of the question, it, it's got to be just Jack Briscoe. You know, you mentioned Terry Funk, and I was thinking about Terry as you spoke of him. You know, Terry was a really good babyface when he needed to be, um, or you know, just when he was in that role. So he's another possibility. And as you mentioned, Thomas, I think if you can't get Bruno, you stick with Pedro. And I know that goes outside the parameters of the question, but I think Pedro is your number two choice if you can't get Bruno. Yeah, I think the numbers, Pedro in 73 was still doing good box office in uh, the major cities, Philadelphia and New York. I don't think Vince Sr. would have gone into the unknown and plucked another baby face in there. And maybe at that point in time, if you can't get Jack Briscoe, do you go the heel route for a champion and keep a long-term heel champion? It goes against the business, obviously, that they've ran for a decade at that point in time. But if there's no viable uh, individual there, do you maybe explore that? And then, and then who does that open that up? Yeah. You know, I'm thinking back to like the number two baby faces, Back then, another possibility, and I mean, I, I don't want to open up a Pandora's box here, but maybe Bobo Brazil. That's a possibility, I think, with Bobo, especially in the New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore market. But then I look at it in 1973, could you go Nick Bockwinkle and bring him in? Would Nick Bockwinkle want to come in for that in 73? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking here another possibility. Uh, Gorilla Monsoon wouldn't have been a good idea. Never mind. Gorilla was great as the number two and as Bruno's tag partner, but I, I they can't put the belt on him. Never mind. Yeah, I don't see uh, really with much with him there. Do you bring the belt back to Ivan? Ivan Koloff, long-term champion. What? I mean, you could. He was over like crazy. You could put you could put the title on him for a year the way they did superstar Billy Graham. But, I mean, I don't think they would have gone, like, long-term, you know, really long-term with an Ivan Koloff. Yeah, 73 makes it, a, makes it an interesting year because it cuts off a lot of guys who got big in 75, 76. Because, really, in, in, like, 75, if you're really hard up, you know, you could put an Ivan Putski in there and make him a champion for six months to a year. I think he was that popular, I think, in, in, the, in the market. But in 73, it, it, he's not there yet. He doesn't have the, the, the capital built yet. You can't put him in. It, it's, you're really hamstrung by the year that it's put in. Now, if you gave Pedro another 18 months, 
I think you could add seven or eight more viable names in this room. Yeah, you know, another name might be a babyface superstar Billy Graham from the AWA. He might not have been ready, but he had that physique and he had all that charisma. That would be a strong possibility as well to superstar. I think he would come off as an arrogant heel, but I don't know, if, or arrogant face rather, and I don't know if that plays well into that crowd, into that territory in 1974. In 77, after he's been kind of welcomed in, 78 maybe, yeah, but I don't know if it's ready for that point in time in 1973 or not. No, you're right. It, it, it is a tough year. Okay, Phil Castor asks, would Crockett Promotions have benefited with establishing a women's division during the mid-'80s to combat Vince McMahon's division? Would bringing in talents like Denise Storm, Medusa Michelli, Misty Blue, and Terry Power, would, would that have worked? Thomas, what are your thoughts? No. <laughs> I guess I'll... I'll prolong it a little bit more, but you really saw with, and I'll use the WWF as an example. They brought it in originally in 84 and without Cindy Lauper, I personally think it would have flopped had she not existed in that regard. So then they bring it back in really 87, 88 with Moolah and Sherry Martell, Rock and Robin. It did a whole lot of nothing. They brought it back again in 93, 94 with Medusa as the Laundra Blaze and Bull Nakano and uh, Rhonda Singh, it did nothing. They brought it back in the late 90s, which was more just, you know, gratuitous TNA, so to speak. But the in-ring and stuff really did nothing. Really, women's wrestling kind of spun its gears until about 2013. So I can't imagine bringing in these competitors uh, from the independent circuit would have done much of anything to Crockett because... If Crockett brought those women in, they really weren't any direct competition because Vince had it so far in the back burner. I don't think he would have cared. No, I I agree with you, but even more, uh, I don't know, with more fervor. I mean, it's a good question, I feel. It's something, obviously, I wanted to talk about. Society has changed a lot since the 1980s when it comes to women's athletics, okay? I mean, there was no concept of, like, a WNBA in the mid-80s when women's wrestling, you know, when the women came out, when they had a match at the Boston Garden or the Providence Civic Center, wherever we went, I mean, people would run, literally sprint to either the bathroom or the concession stands. People just didn't want to see it. It was a different time, and I enjoy the women's wrestling now. I mean, <laughs> they, you know, so many good competitors, but back then, no one was any good. Yeah, it was. It made it a point to where Trish Stratus was in the business for at that point in time, maybe two or three years as an in-ring competitor, and people were saying, "Oh my goodness, this might be the best American women's wrestler of all time." And <laughs> think about that now in like 2007, 2006, compared to what we have right now, how far of a jump that really is. Yeah, I know someone, or I knew someone like 10 years ago who had a daughter who was, I forget what she did in high school, but she was an athlete, and things had changed. Like, you know, the, the popular girls, according to my friend, were now the girls who played sports. Those were not the popular girls when I went to high school. And like I said, society has changed, I think, in this regard for the better. But I think had Crockett tried something like that, he would have had his demise much more quickly. That especially was not what the NWA audience wanted. 
the thing about it there becomes, who do you take TV time away from? If you're bringing in an entire division, you're taking away a big chunk of TV. Does that eliminate your TV championship? Does that kind of neuter any mid-card feuds? Any tag, tag teams were great in the, in the Crockett territory from 87 throughout the end of Crockett's run. Do you cut that back? Like, What are you going to take away from, and how, how much worse is the product going to be at that time? You know, you bring up a really good point about whose TV time is going to take away. Certainly by the end of 1987, I thought Crockett had way too much TV. So maybe you could have used a division like this to fill up all of that TV inventory. But I'm telling you, you know, just the NWA audience would not have wanted to see it. And like I said, things have changed, and that's a good thing. All right, Thomas, time for you to pick a topic, my friend. Dominic Violi. During the Mid-South UWF years, 85 to 87, who do you feel the company missed the boat on? Who could have been a major star within the company? Now, I assume he's talking about within the company, so it can't be anybody who's wrestling on the independent circuit or you know remained in Dallas or remained in Florida who was there. Most of the guys that they hit on, they hit on pretty well. So it's kind of hard to say this guy they missed on, but I'll go on a limb here and I'll say Hollywood John Tatum. I think with a proper mouthpiece like he would have had with Missy Hyatt, if they would have included him more in Hot Stuff International, I think he had a good enough ring presence to where they could have done, they, they could have made him the, the North American champion or the UWF champion, but he could have been a strong part of that mid-card. I mean, I agree with you. I always liked Hollywood John Tatum. The, the problem with Tatum, the, the two big problems here, okay? Number one, when he was with Missy, we know who the star of that show was. And number two, when in real life, Eddie Gilbert, the booker, stole John Tatum's girlfriend, Missy Hyde, away from him. I mean, you know John Tatum is not getting any kind of a push with Eddie as booker. But you're right. I thought his, his talent exceeded his push level. If I wanted to pick one guy, and this might be a little bit of a surprise, Joe Savoldi was in the UWF in 1986, and he got a push up here in ICW in his dad's promotion, and I thought Joseph Aldi was good. Joseph Aldi was really nothing but enhancement talent in the UWF in 86. I don't remember him winning a single match, and I thought he could have been an effective mid-carder. Have you ever seen a Savoldi match, Thomas? Uh, yeah, I, I did see him. Uh, again, IWCCW was uh, a syndicated uh, Saturday morning at like 9 a.m., program right before um nwa pro actually so i did see a little bit of him i i recall him teaming a lot with george weingroff in mid-south as an enhancement guy i thought he was a, a fine a, a good hand i mean I, I didn't really see star making potential with him in that regard i will say if we're going to cheat a little bit if there's one person they missed the boat on it wasn't bill watts's fault it was his own fault but they really could have gotten more out of chris adams had he not had legal trouble yeah, Chris Adams would have been good for that promotion, especially being as they were trying to get into the Dallas market. But, I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I talk about Savoldi. Like, I, I saw him pushed on a, on a promotion. It was a minor league promotion, but the push worked. And like you, I got them on syndicated TV. They were on at 1 in the morning right after Worldwide Wrestling uh, on Channel 27, I think, Channel 25 here in Boston. And I, I do recall by IWCCW, even though the program was new every week, 
they would continuously show the Vic Steamboat Tony Atlas title match every week. Almost as like a serial episode. I remember that as well. And one of my all-time favorite interviews was Victor Steamboat. I, want, I forget who. Oh, it was the Boston Bad Boy. Boston Bad Boy cut his hair, right? This is the old haircutting angle. And Victor Steamboat gets on TV. And he says, he's like, you know, I liked my hair the way it was before he cut it on me. It's like such a dumb thing to say. No wonder Victor never got over. If I recall correctly, is that where what, I know Taz started out there? Did the Sandman start there as well, too? I don't remember Sandman being in I, ICW. Um, I do remember, uh, let me see. I remember Phil Apollo or Vince Apollo getting his start there. They had some talent, but and it was like it was just a camp for me at least, and it sounds like the same for you. It was a campy show to watch if I felt like staying up at one in the morning and just having it on. Yeah, it was something that if you turned it on, you kept it on, but if you turned it on, it wasn't on appointment TV, but you turned it on and the commercial was on, you went to the next channel. Exactly. It was the thing that was on after the NWA, so I, I usually stayed up and watched it. Ah, that was, that was, those were fun days, mid-80s. But anyway, Nicholas Coleitis asks, if any of Vince's other major business ventures, like the original XFL, WPF, had been a runaway success, how do you think the wrestling landscape would have changed with Vince uh, having to divide his time, resources, and energy running multiple empires. Thomas, what are your thoughts? Uh, two answers to this. I think if the WBF had been a success, it would have just coincided with the WWF. It would have been running like two things at once, if that were to be the goal there. The XFL was a little different, though, because there's been rumors, and you know, confirmed or not, that Vince tried to buy the Minnesota Vikings, that Vince tried to buy the CFL. I do think if had Vince McMahon gotten a success from the XFL, he may have handed over the day-to-day operations of the WWF. I, I truly think that. Now, in that case, say in 2002, the XFL's a runaway success. Who takes over? Is it a, a Senate group of uh, like-minded people, Patterson, Pritchard, Shane, at that point in time? Because really, Stephanie's not in the picture and really in 02 is a part of a a head of the company that might've caused a little turmoil, but then again, they had a lot of capital because the, there was no competition anymore. They could work some bugs up. They could do some things. Honestly, wrestling would have been for the better. Had the XFL been a success, had the WBF been a success, I think it would have been for the worse. I agree with your answer. Um, I think, I mean, we we're talking 10 years difference, which is a, a really long time in wrestling, and, and wrestling evolves so much in that 10 years. I'm with you. If the WBF had been a success, I don't think it would have taken too much of Vince's time and resources. I, I think wrestling would have been his number one. If the XFL had taken off, I think Vince re- might have, he might have gone as far as to either abandon the WWF, like you suggested, just have you know, maybe Shane or Triple H run it, or he might have sold it. I think Vince McMahon would way, way rather be the guy who runs a successful football league than the guy who runs a pro wrestling federation. I understand the logic in that, but there's a part of me that thinks that Vince would always want to keep the WWF. Because you you hear now 
rumors about Fox or rumors about Disney wanting to buy the WWF for billions of dollars. And Vince, you know, at his you know, advanced age now, it would be very easy for him to just sign it over, take the money, go to Florida and retire. But I think at this point in time, he views the WWF, WWE as his legacy. Whereas if he ran the XFL, then it's his obituary says Vince McMahon, founder of the XFL, co- former owner of WWF, dead. The WWF will always be attached to Vince McMahon now. And there's a part of me that thinks he prefers it that way. I can definitely see that. You know, the, the XFL is starting up again in April. Thomas, do you think, what do you think is going to happen with that? Well, the USFL is coming in uh, this year. Oh, season. sorry, my bad. The following year. Well, the initial thing that I heard about the XFL was the reason why they were waiting was to eventually maybe merge with the CFL. And the USFL is coming back. I know that spring football and minor league football is predetermined to never work. But I think there must be some kind of inkling from the NFL for these leagues to keep coming back again. Now, keep, keep in mind, in the last decade, we had the Alliance of American Football, we had the XFL, we had the USFL, the XFL coming back. We had another league back in 2013. I believe the NFL desperately wants a feeder system that is not college football. And I think that a lot of these groups are trying to be the first one out there to maintain a foothold so they can get that NFL backing and more importantly, that NFL financial support. All right, I can see that. I mean, like you said, I mean, we have all of these alternative leagues, and we always say, oh, you know, we need sports programming in the spring, and it just never works. I, I just can't see the new USFL or the new XFL crossing that line. I mean, it always sounded good. You know, the Arena Football League was doing well at one point, but it just never works long-term, and I, I don't see how it's going to work out this time. But, but like you said, unless if you can do well enough to, so that the NFL is interested in you as a feeder system, I never considered that, so I guess that's why they keep trying. Well, the thing about it, too, is with the XFL in 2020, they were doing good TV. They had wised up from the last time around. They had gone from 70,000 seat uh, stadiums that were, you know, a quarter full to playing in outdoor soccer stadiums that seated, you know, 12, 13,000. And the, the optics of that being completely filled was a lot better. The football was better in the XFL in 2020 because they didn't hastily rush it out there, draft teams, and then in three weeks play week one. And the other thing about it as well, too, is they didn't come out and say they were a competitor to the NFL. They didn't come out and say they were an alternative. They didn't say they were minor league football or second tier football, but they didn't let you think you were, you know, they were going to go up against Roger Goodell in two years like the USFL did back in the 80s. Their eyes weren't bigger than their stomachs at that point in time is what I'm getting at. Yeah, the, the USFL, got it. I mean, that came out when I was a senior in high school. I mean, yeah, it looked like it was going to be a big deal and there was a demand for it, but as we all know, it fell apart. All right, Thomas, your turn to pick a question. If Vince McMahon didn't purchase the WWF from his father, a lot of WWF questions in this question set this week, who could have been a potential owner to take over after Vince Sr. passed? So this goes into 1984 here. So 
The first answer is the, in my eyes, there, there's several, and I'll let John go first. But the one that comes to mind, obviously, is the the trinity of Phil Zacco, Arnold Skolan, and Gorilla Monsoon. I think it would have just been Gorilla Monsoon. My understanding is that, you know, Monsoon was the smartest guy. He understood the wrestling business. He had money put away. And I, I think it would have just gone to Monsoon. And I, I think he would have held on to the other guys as advisors. But I think, you know, it, it wouldn't have been like, okay, three guys owning uh, an even share, an equal share, excuse me. I think it would have been just, you know, Gorilla's wrestling promotion. What about if, assuming that the day Vince Sr. dies is when the transition takes over, we won't get into the schematics about, you know, when he got sick and everything else. What about Ted Turner? Because at this point in time, you have Georgia, you have Mid-Atlantic there. Both of them have Ted Turner uh, showing their programming. But what if Vince just owned, or what if Ted Turner just owned it and just put it on PBS? I love that idea. I I think that's, that's awesome. I mean, and I think he would have done it. I absolutely think he would have done it. He could have bought the WWF, booted the uh, Georgia off of his cable, and now he's got his own wrestling promotion on his own cable television network. I, I think that is a real possibility. And you have to remember, too, in the uh, Georgia the Georgia territory battles, if I'm not mistaken, Ted was more pro and Gunkel than he was the other side. So I don't think it would have been any kind of loyalty issue with Ted Turner to boot those other companies off. No, absolutely not. I mean, I, I can see Turner saying, okay, you know, the 605 spot goes to my new wrestling promotion, the World Wrestling Federation, but I'll get, keep you guys on at like 11 or, or 11 at night or midnight. Like maybe, I don't know. But, but here's the problem with Turner though, because they had this problem when the WWF bought the GCW time slot. Turner wanted the programming shot in Atlanta. So does Turner just bypass that, let them continue to promote in the East Coast? I have no reason to think Turner would not expand and try to go world, you know, nationwide. But I just wonder how deliberate he would have been about it. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, but here's the thing, you know, when we talk about who can take over the promotion from Vince McMahon Sr., I mean, obviously, it's it's easy to work a deal with your kid, which is what he did. Monsoon, you trust him, but Turner has the money. He he can write a check for, I'm guessing, around two three million dollars, and that w- would have been the end of it. So that's a factor. And then Turner, to me, Turner and Monsoon seem like the most obvious people involved here. I don't think anyone else really. Part of me says if if Vince isn't there. And Vince Sr. is gone, and Vince Jr. is not there. Hogan's still in the AWA. Could Vern go east? Uh, I mean, he's headline, he had headlined Madison Square Garden before, so that's a possibility that he might want to return to the Northeast. And he, and he still has Hulk Hogan at this point in time. Yeah, you know what? Even with all of that, I, I don't think Vince uh, Vern would have gone to the finish line. I think you know, he was older and just lack that creativity to go out there. And, you know, I, I think if the AWA wrestling, if it tried to go national, it might have worked short term, but long term, no way. I just don't think Vern had the vision for it, quite frankly. Is there anybody, let's just say the player manager situation here, is there anybody that's active at that time? And I'm not saying that he would, but like a, for example, like a Harley race. 
that could have had the, the capital or the investors or even the interest to go ahead and do something like this. And I'll throw Bill Watts in there as well, but I don't think Watts was going to be able to do it either. No, I, I don't know of anyone in the wrestling business that could have just written a check. You know, okay, I'll buy this promotion. I mean, maybe there's someone I don't know about, but I don't think anyone's out there. Another possibility is just a wrestling fan who happens to be a millionaire and would like to purchase the promotion. Not even sure of I mean, it left with no other choice. I, he would have done that, but I think that's like way down the trough for him. Yeah, I, I don't see. And then maybe you look at it from another perspective here. Do you, could you see someone like, you know, Baba or Inoki buying it and having that pipeline of talent coming in out of Japan that way? Oh, you just, you just hit it out of the park. Inoki had the money, and oh, my God, Inoki would have loved to have purchased the WWF. Oh, Thomas, that was great. Inoki, absolutely. I don't know why I didn't think of him. I mean, I mean, Inoki would have loved that. buying the WWF and using it as a vehicle to make Inoki a big wrestling star in the United States. He absolutely would have done that. And don't forget, too, it cuts out the middleman negotiating these guys coming in for tours every time. He could just send them over there. Yeah, <laughs> it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, yeah, you're right. You know, he could just send guys over for his own promotion in Japan. And, and still work the, the Northeast or wherever else he wanted to work. I think that's a fantastic answer. But then I wonder, with, with all those ducks in a row, does Anoki just stay on both sides of the coast and doesn't really, you know, and leaves the middle of the country wide open just because he's so preoccupied with Japan? Because that's going to be his first love, obviously, and his first focus. Yeah, I think I have a hard time seeing Anoki at least initially trying to expand outside the WWF in this complete hypothetical where he purchases the promotion, I think he would have stuck with what he knew. Yeah, I think he would have stayed on the, you know, the, he would have kept the territory that Vince Sr. had, and obviously just for the sake of convenience, he would have took, taken over the West Coast, California, and Hawaii. But I, I think that middle of the country, I don't think he's going to do a show at Comiskey Park or Pontiac Silverdome. Okay. Uh, let me see. Sean Ryan asks, did the wrestling fandom look down on Jack and Jerry Briscoe when they sold their share of Georgia to Vince McMahon? Thomas, your thoughts on this? The smart fan, yeah. The fact of the matter is, in 1984, how many smart fans knew the Briscoes had a big chunk in Georgia and just thought they were coming in and just doing that and, and, and Vince came in? Later on in the 90s, when, when the internet was popular with wrestling news, did folks look down on him in, in after the fact? Of course they did. But at the time, I, I don't see it. Folks in the business, yeah. I believe the folks in the business certainly looked down on Jack and Jerry. And that's kind of why Jerry and Jack kind of took care of themselves on the deal and got you know, jobs for life, although Jack didn't last very long, because they knew they were probably persona non grata had they left the World Wrestling Federation. So wrestling business folks, absolutely. Wrestling fans, eh, not really. Yeah, only a tiny fraction of the wrestling fans knew anything about Jack and Jerry Briscoe selling their shares of Georgia and, you know, Vince McMahon getting the WTBS spot and the Briscoes, you know, getting jobs for life, like you said, in the WWF and a big push as a tag team. The fans that did know about it, I mean, it seemed kind of divided. Like there were people who were angry that Vince McMahon, you know, now has a monopoly on on national cable television, 
But at the same time, you know, it's the Briscoe's shares to sell. I mean, if they think this is the right move for themselves, they got to look out for themselves. And what are they going to do, look out for Ole Anderson? Yeah, exactly. At this point in time, Ole had already expanded. I think they had to have the reasonable fear that if Ole flops here, he sells out, and now the Briscoes are caught holding the bag, and now they're bankrupt and worrying about what's going to happen next. They had to make the move. You know, that, that's an excellent point. Well, I, I, mean, I, I don't think Ole was ever going to sell to Vince McMahon. He, he wouldn't sell to Vince McMahon even after the Briscoes took over. And, you know, Vince would say to Ole, Ole, let's make some money together. And Ole was like, you know, wouldn't have anything to do with it. But at the same time, you know, I know Jerry Briscoe wanted to go national and Ole was just going a little bit too slow for, for Jerry's taste. I've heard that because I know Ole was kind of creeping into Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan. And I know that Ole wouldn't have sold to Vince, but Ole could have sold to Crockett or to Bill Watts. Yeah, you know what? That is a good point. He would have never sold to Vince, but what about the other promoters? And I don't think he would have, but if I'm Jack Briscoe, I'm not sleeping on that guarantee, you know? And in early 1984, before everything was crumbling around, Fritz Von Erich could have had that national. He already had the interest from everyone around the country through his syndicated stuff. He could have easily been a viable buyer for that. Yeah. You know, in 1983, I mean, I look back and I'm like, you know, Ole Anderson, I don't mean to sit here and bash Ole. I always, it feels like I always do. And I don't have anything against Ole. I just, I think he just made some bad decisions. Like in 1983, he has this incredible asset. He has wrestling on WTBS at 6.05 every Saturday, and he's out there pushing Pez Watley and Jay Youngblood and Brett Wayne, and it's like, dude, you are dropping the ball. You have this incredible asset that you are underutilizing. I, if I'm another promoter, man, I, I really think about calling Ole and saying, Ole, you know, your promotion's not doing good. You're drawing like 3,000 at the Omni. How about I buy you out? And maybe he would have. Oh, he did it half right. He started the expansion. He got the TV. He just never rated anybody for talent. Yeah, because they were having money problems, and Oli, you know, didn't want to be a top payoff man. And the only guys who were working Georgia in 1983 were guys who couldn't get jobs anywhere else. And it showed. It really did. And really, not to say that GCW was was doing great in '83, but they they were in a lot better position than. Portland, Kansas City, or Florida, he could have had a fantasy draft of those three companies in and of itself and had a great <laughs> roster. I, I mean, yeah, I, I totally agree. And like I said, you know, he, he had that asset that he completely, I, I don't think he knew what he had. And it was funny because a lot of people in the business knew what he had. Like, uh, I mean, I've told this story before, Terry Funk comes home, uh, his house at Amarillo and Georgia Championship Wrestling is on his TV in 1979. And he says, hey, I'm selling the Amarillo promotion. And he did. And the thing about it, too, is granted, the WWF had already gone out to California in early the early part of 83. So that expansion was starting there. But it was really kind of just tiptoeing until Hogan came into play. You could have gotten guys underneath in the WWF in that time 
they were kind of just you know fluttering around and not doing a whole lot. You could have brought in a mass superstar and brought him back and made him made him your lead heel in Georgia. It wouldn't have been too far out of the question. You could have brought Slaughter back. Yeah, they were making more money there, but at the same time, you could come out and say, "Hey, we're on 50 states in this country, all over the all over the United States, 6:05 every Saturday. Your face will be plastered all over the TV, just like Joe Montana." You're not in every arena yet, but you're in every home right now. And at that point in time, that's just as good. Because if you go into Illinois and you don't have a six-month TV presence, you're going to draw flies. You have to have that build-up first. And that's what Vince did. Vince showed the other company's talent throughout the fall and winter of 83. And then when he slowly brought them in, they had that recognizable factor from television so they could sell out in the arenas when they came in in 84. Yeah, I I agree with that. I no one realized what Vince was doing when, when he was doing that. I mean, another factor against the you know Georgia Championship Wrestling in '83 is that you know I think if you had put me in charge of talent, I would have scoured every promotion out there, the Portlands, the Vancouver's, the Central States, and would have been like, okay, there's a guy here who has talent, Dynamite Kid from Portland. Let's get him. Calgary, Bret Hart, he's really good. Let's get him. It's like, you know, always just brought in whoever. And he didn't think it mattered. And it, it showed on the quality of his programming. Yeah, and ultimately it was it came to his demise because as well, when when you go back to the old Iyata interview with Ole and Dave Meltz, which we discussed uh about eighteen months ago, Ole didn't trust a lot of guys either in the ring. He fought Hogan sucked. He fought Flair sucked. He fought Savage sucked. He had a very poor eye for talent. He had a great mind for booking. He just had a very poor eye for talent. He did. I think only to some extent, you know, you look at what Paulie Dangerously did with ECW. I mean, he found the guys who had that little something that he thought he could exploit or he would create characters like Public Enemy. I mean, Ole just never did any of that. I, I, I feel like I pick on Ole too much, but I'm the guy who was all excited about getting Georgia Championship Wrestling on cable and then just watching it get worse and worse every week. But anyway, Thomas, we've got time for one more question for you. I'll do a quick one here from Joshua Corman. What motivated tape traders? And I believe this is a question that is a Easy bounce pass layup for you to close the show on, John, so I'll go ahead and, and defer to you. Well, Thomas, I, I was actually going to close the show on this one. I was going to have you get in one last question. I, I was going to get in this question. I read about all of the wrestling and all of the magazines I could get my hands on, and then when I started getting in touch with other people from around the country— and now I'm not just reading about, you know, what happened in Florida in 1982. Now I can actually see it. Now I can see the things that the magazines didn't cover. And it was something I absolutely coveted, and I'm lucky enough to have gotten to see a whole lot of good stuff. It's the, it's the interest factor. Because with the magazines, even, you know, back in the 80s, you still knew they were kayfabe. So you, oh, yeah. you could take with a grain of salt who's good, who's great, who's the pitch, whatever. And it's that curiosity fact. You could, living in Pittsburgh, you could never get Florida. You could never get Portland. You could never get Calgary. But with the tape trading, you could get all those things. And more importantly, 
you can get a block of programming. You can get three months worth of programming in the mail at one time. So it wasn't, okay, wait a week, you know, wait five weeks for another tape. You could get it all. And then more importantly, if you got Vancouver, for example, and you saw that it was lousy, you could stop midway through tape two and go for it. And you realize, okay, there's nothing going on here. I, I do regret, I guess I'm a little young for the tape trading era. I grew up in the era of you know, cable television starting to really hit its stride. The one territory that I wish I could see a lot more of, and everyone always says Mid-South or Memphis, so I, I won't take the easy answer here. I really wanted to dive into the uh, ICW POFO promotion. Anything that has you know, predominantly Randy Savage and Ronnie Garvin and Bob Orton Jr. and Bob Roop, that seems really, really interesting. I mean, I, I think it was a lot more, I guess, cutting edge ring-wise than the other territories in the late 70s, early 80s. I'd really love to dive into that. The thing I would most like to see that I have seen very little of is when Blackjack Mulligan tried to run Knoxville, when they had like Terry Taylor, and uh, he was called Barry Windham Jr. back then, or excuse me, uh, Blackjack Mulligan Jr. back then. They had Kevin Sullivan. It looked interesting in the magazines, and I've always wanted to see it. There's very little of it out there. Yeah, I, I don't have much knowledge of that at all, actually. I would guess that's, what, 80, 81, 82? Exactly. Like, middle of 81 until probably spring of 1982, where in Mulligan threw in the towel on it. If you don't have it, I guess no one else probably has it, unless it's on a, a real <laughs> you, you never know. You never know. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, Thomas, I want to thank you for being on as a guest. I think you've been on as a guest more than anyone by this point, and I can't wait to have you back. John, it's very honorable to be the Tony Randall of your late night with John McAdam here. But again, <laughs> always a pleasure. Have a great time on here. Anytime you need me, give me a buzz. Thank you very much, Thomas. Your shows are always entertaining, just like today's was. Once again, I want to apologize to everyone. The audio is not as good as I want it to be. It was either do the show this way or miss a show, and we do not miss shows here. I have a new microphone headset arriving in two days, but two days would have been too late. So hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got through it. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman. I have put a lot in his lap this week. And thank you. I want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll be back next week. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Take care. This concludes our podcast day. 